0: Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. In today's episode, Greg and I sit down for an interview with Dr. Krista Scott-Dixon. Krista is the Director of Curriculum at Precision Nutrition, and she was kind enough to join us for a discussion on a variety of topics, including behavior change, how to change eating behaviors, common mistakes that dieters and nutrition coaches make, and how someone might assess and potentially improve their relationship with food. As always, thank you for listening. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler. Today, I'm joined by my very temporary guest host, Greg Knuckles, but we are also interviewing Dr. Krista Scott-Dixon. How are you doing today?
1: I'm good. How are you guys doing?
0: I am doing extremely well. Greg, how are you?
2: Pretty good. Pretty good.
0: Very nice. Is it okay if we call you Krista? Because that's a lot of syllables. Dr. Krista Scott-Dixon.
1: Yeah, yeah, please call me Krista. Uh, even when I was teaching university, I was Krista. So I guess I'm I'm hoping that I'm still young and hip enough to not be Dr. Scott Dixon. So that's my Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, Krista's I, always good.
0: I'm the same way. I the only people I have call me doctor is just Greg and my girlfriend, but everybody else I say please just call me Eric. <laughs> so Krista, um Stronger by Science, we in the last 18 months have started doing a lot more nutrition content because I showed up and I I do the nutrition stuff, but um, it's possible that some of our listeners who have been here for a while um, might not be super familiar with the nutrition side of stuff, and therefore they might not be familiar with you and your work. So do you mind giving us a very brief uh, kind of self-introduction in terms of who you are and what your background is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I write the curriculum. I'm the curriculum director for Precision Nutrition, uh, which is, we like to say, the world's leading online nutrition coaching and coach certification company. Uh, so uh, we certify nutrition coaches. That's our main business, but we also coach clients. So we sort of do both client and coach end of things. Um, and so my role is to oversee uh, much of the curriculum that we produce, whether that's writing our textbook for uh, coaches going through nutrition certification or uh, you know, coaching programs for clients. I'm doing less of that these days, just because we've scaled up so enormously. Uh, it now takes more than one person. But for a long time, I was like a one-woman show, uh, producing most of the curriculum for Precision Nutrition. So, thankfully, now that we've grown to having about a hundred people uh, on our team, uh, I no longer have to do all of that. But that's basically my role. And so, it's you know, essentially, it's my role is to be a good generalist. So, it's to know enough of everything about everything. That that I can bring all the pieces together and then, you know, find subject matter experts to, to weigh in and, and to sort of knit their perspectives together.
0: Awesome. How long have you been with uh, Precision Nutrition?
1: Uh, about 12 years, I guess. I think 2008 was when I came on with them, And I, and I was, I mean, it was a small startup at the time and I think I was employee number seven or eight, something like that. (laughs) So, yeah. And I was brought on to, (laughs) to talk about the quote unquote female perspective. Um, the two co-founders of Precision Nutrition, John Berardi and Phil Caravaggio sat me down in 2008 and said, listen, we're two dudes. Uh, you know, we're heavy into the bro end of things, and so we can speak to bros. But, uh, you know, women people, like, we're not as good with that. We can't really speak as authoritatively from that perspective. And so, you know, would you be <laughs> willing to come on and kind of advise us on some content for female clients and, um, eventually female coaches? So, yeah, that was kind of like my first orientation to Precision Nutrition. I was brought on as the chick. <laughs> awesome.
0: The director of Being a Woman at Precision yes, Nutrition. Yes. <laughs> Quite a title.
1: <laughs> so,
0: uh, so obviously, I'm I'm familiar with a lot of your work. Um, you know, you've published books and stuff like that. And when I think of your work, the the stuff that sticks out to me pertains more to the behavioral aspects uh, of dieting. So, um, you know, effective coaching methods, but also just kind of eating behavior in general. And uh, my background, I'm a physiology person. So, the stuff that I'm interested in is essentially useless without people like you disseminating good information. So I basically have a ton of questions to ask you about kind of the psychological and behavioral sides of eating and then how we can actually act upon that and hopefully improve our our eating habits, either for ourselves or for our clients. So um, I, I guess one of my first questions is, why is it so damn hard to change behaviors in general? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, my goodness, we could talk for hours about that. But I mean, I guess the simple answer is that as adults, it's not really cognitively in our interest to massively disrupt familiar routines. And so uh, you know, the, the way the brain works best is it establishes a series of routines and shorthands for things. And so it, it's funny, like we, we don't like to think very much in terms of like actively puzzling through things and problem solving and, and ingesting new information and digesting it. Brains actually don't like to do a lot of Thinking, They like to do a lot of running pre-established routines and establishing familiarity. Um, and so like they're kind of, um, I don't want to say design, but they evolved to prefer automaticity because if you think about all of the stimuli coming in, on an average day, you know, you're listening to this podcast and your butt is in the chair and your postural muscles are firing to keep you upright. And there's ambient temperature in the room. Like there's just this unbelievable amount of stimuli to pay attention to if you're a brain. And so to sort that out and process it and kind of whittle it down to the most salient pieces, brains have developed these kind of subroutines that um, make life more efficient from this uh, perspective. And so in an evolutionary sense, yes, we're designed to learn. Absolutely, neuroplasticity is a thing. It's extremely effortful, as anyone who's tried to truly learn a new skill as an adult will know. Um, But in general, the brain's default setting is homeostasis, same old, same old, get that butt groove in the couch going, and kind of coast there. And now, I mean, different people have different orientations to novelty versus stasis. Like there's individual variation. But in general, it's very costly to learn new things and disrupt things all the time.
0: I know how to write like six lines worth of code. So I'm going to make this a computer programming example. So we, we basically, our brain has its established loops and they work and it likes to run them and, and any kind of deviation from those pre-written chunks of code we're like oh god that's that's a lot of effort
1: yeah and i mean it, and it's interesting how much the brain will will stick to things especially anything that's like implicit learning right like movement learning so for example the other day i rearranged my cutlery drawer And like, my God, if I, I, I'm still reaching for that knife in the wrong place, like months later, (laughs) like when I say the other day, it was months ago. Right. And so, or like when you, um, you know, move where you put your car keys or maybe you sell your car and you no longer have car keys, but you keep reaching for your car keys. Like a lot of the, the implicit things we do, um, you know, those are very much grooved and we'll notice ourselves doing them for quite a long time after the cue to do it has been extinguished
2: that one really hits home like the new car my car my old car's transmission died just completely dead like 3 months ago uh yeah like 4 or 5 months ago um we got a new car it also has a push button ignition and it also has like a little button for the trunk and to this day i still i just like poke a random place on the dashboard every time i get into the car because <laughs> it's where the it's where the the button was in the old car to turn it on Um, and, and it has proven impossible thus far to remember that, that the button's in a different spot. So the, yeah, just those, those motor routines that, uh, that very much hits home for me.
1: And there's life routines too, right? Like, I mean, behaviors and emotional responses that we learn fairly early on and which were often adaptive early on are also really hard to dislodge. Like if you have a way that you typically react when you're emotionally activated, whether you get angry or you cry or, you know, you go silent or whatever, um, those are also really, really hard to unlearn. Like if you've ever tried to unlearn them, I mean, you know, it takes just an incredible amount of conscious effort to do because those got grooved in so early and they were adaptive a lot of the time.
0: That's an interesting point you bring up, because I I was going to ask, when it comes to, obviously, behavior change is tough. But from my perspective, it seems like nutrition and eating related behaviors are particularly tricky. Is that true? Like, are they like among the more stubborn behaviors to try to, uh, to kind of reformat?
1: Yeah, for most people. I mean, there's always that like 1% of person who typically is a computer scientist or something like that. And they just look at their nutrition plan one day logically and say, well, this is clearly ineffective and adopt a change routine and off they go. But for most of us, yes, they are very difficult. And I think it's because there are so many intersecting factors in them. So I mean, You have millions of years of evolutionary programming that has particular preferences for sweetness and fat and comforting ourselves through food. I mean, you have the environment that we live in. Um, You know, I'm in Canada, like, you know, the North American food environment is full of stimuli and cues. Um, The foods themselves, I mean, we're surrounded by hyper palatable foods that really spin our dials. And so, They are very entrenched because there are so many intersecting inputs that reinforce uh, the behavior and the inclinations.
0: Yeah, and at at Precision, I mean, you you guys put together a lot of materials that are, uh, you know, designed to help people become effective nutrition coaches, and I would imagine an enormous part of that is not just evaluating one's own behaviors, but helping guide someone through Their own behavior changes. So what kinds of strategies uh, do you typically promote at Precision in terms of, I mean, this stuff is not easy to do. So where do you start with someone who wants to be a nutrition coach and they say, how do I help someone change their eating behaviors?
1: Yeah. And there's lots of answers to that question because I think one of the tricks of being a coach or I guess it's really the skills, the art is learning about people And really understanding what motivates this person. And not just in the sense of being motivated, but like what drives them? Like what gets them out of bed in the morning? How do they think? How do they look at the world? Um, You know, what's their whole paradigm uh, of how things are and how things work? So, I mean, a lot of it starts with really understanding each client as an individual. I mean, obviously there are types and there are trends, but a client that responds to one angle you know, may not respond to a- another angle. So, for example, some clients are very logical. Typically, these are your engineers, your science types, your computer programmers, like I said, and they like data. So, for example, they might respond well to seeing data about what they're doing, which enhances their awareness, and then they use the data to make different choices. Or they like measuring things. So, I mean, they're, ha- they're quite happy to go off and measure a bunch of stuff. Then you have maybe people who are living lives of such mindlessness that one of the first steps is simply to bring their conscious attention to anything that they do. Because they're so rushed and busy and stressed and scrambling and multitasking and just like so partially attentioning everything. <laughs> that The first task is simply to bring not even full attention, like 80% of their attention to the actions that they're taking. Um, And so this, for these kinds of clients, we use mindfulness. Um, I don't even like the term mindfulness because it's still a little bit cognitive for me. I prefer bodyfulness, which doesn't really make sense as a word, but like helping acquaint these people with the relationship between cause and effect. When you do this, when you eat this, how do you feel? What response do you get? You know, what sensations does it produce in your body and so forth? Um, So for other people, like directing their conscious attention, to what they're doing is helpful. And there are little ways to do it, right? Eat slowly is one of our classic techniques of precision nutrition. Um, And that, I mean, people always think that's ridiculously simple, but if you've ever committed yourself to really eating slowly, especially without distractions, you know, it's like, wow, (laughs) it really changes your eating experience. Um, Another group of clients have eating issues that are secondary to some kind of Trauma, some kind of difficult experience, uh, whether that's you know childhood neglect, growing up with alcoholic parents, like you know sexual assault, like there's all kinds of things that can happen to people that um, ask them to use eating or not eating or food control or overexercising or whatever they're doing to cope. Um, and with those clients, we work a lot on emotional self-regulation, calming yourself down, you know, managing your reactions, pausing, like putting a Putting a pause between the urge, the impulse to act, and what you actually do. So, you know, when you come home after a tough day at work, like putting a little break in between you coming in the front door and you reaching in the snack cabinet, for example. Um, And then for other clients, it's just basic, like, good habits like getting the protein in there so they feel more satisfied getting their fiber intake up so again they feel more satisfied getting their fruits and vegetables up so like it really is a different approach but i would say what unites all of these is a real emphasis on simplicity and we've learned over the years i mean we've gotten as fancy as anyone probably could like we <laughs> we you know in our own experiments on ourselves we've gotten super complicated but having observed thousands of clients it's obvious that the simplest approaches are almost always the best and everyone benefits from core fundamentals. And so, you know, no matter how we tailor your approach, it's almost never going to be extremely complicated because that's just not really what works.
0: Yeah. And so w- when you're uh, putting these materials together or training nutrition coaches, do you kind of tend have a tendency to walk them through some of these major types of clients or do you just give them a big toolkit and say, here's a variety of, of approaches for behavior change and, you know, you basically just mix and match them as you see fit.
1: Well, we give them a process and a system. So it's kind of like a balance of what you're talking about. So, so rather than saying uh, there are types of clients, because that's something I think you intuitively learn over the years, Depending, and, and, and those types are going to vary depending on the population that you work with, right? If you're someone that works with high school athletes, You know, the type of person you're going to see is going to be different than if you work with uh, high-powered type A endurance athlete executives in their 50s kind of thing. So we don't really give so much types as we do a process of reasoning. And this is something I've always cared a lot about as the curriculum designer is teaching meta skills of critical thinking, reasoning, decision making, just a really thoughtful, aware, like step-by-step process to coaching. And so we use this six-step process, which really isn't anything fancy or sophisticated. It's just kind of slowing people down because the first impulse as a coach is often to just leap right into taking action, right? You see a client, they're doing something wrong, you're like, "Ah, oh god, I got to fix that right away," right? And then you tell them what to do. Well, <laughs> a huge amount of what you do as a coach is actually Investing on the front end, which is learning about your client, right? Really getting to know them and understand them, and then doing the action planning in collaboration with them. So by giving this like system of uh, decision making and kind of like procedural assessment, understanding, action planning, uh, you know, establishing your indicators, monitoring and follow up reassessment. It's like a cyclical process. It really allows you to address any client situation, even if you don't necessarily have direct experience with it. And so I think, you know, the value in what we do is a a lot of it is in these meta skills because now, I mean, the laws of biochemistry probably aren't going to change that much in the next 20 years, but maybe how we think about nutrition may change or a new, it's funny because I was just talking to someone today about witnessing the emergence of CrossFit in the last 20 years. Like I remember the very first CrossFit, uh, back when it was like an underground weird thing, And so that's a sport in a way that didn't exist 20 years ago. So practices may change, but if you have those meta skills, you can adapt.
0: Yeah. And so you mentioned that simplicity is usually the key. Um, You know, when you were talking about different types of clients, uh, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but you mentioned like the engineer type that that is very data driven. Greg and I kind of smiled at each other. That's, I don't know, 98% of our audience, would you say?
2: Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's probably 80% of our collective coaching clients.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we get a lot of that um, just because of the type of content that we put out. Um, do you ever see clients like that who um, almost reject simplicity where like they want to see more things in motion like yes. on the coaching side? Or,
2: or <laughs> if you don't give them, if you don't assign them 10 variables to track, they're like, no, I don't have homework. This can't be effective coaching. Like I I need, I need something to do that's like super time intensive and active to feel like I'm getting my money's worth and getting effective coaching.
1: Yeah, I'm smiling and laughing as you're saying this because I absolutely know like that type of client and I and I totally get it and and if you don't give them something with the quadratic equation they're dis- they're actively disappointed. And uh you know, these are people who are likely to use terms like biohacking to describe sleep and things like that. So, I absolutely get that kind of client and I think, you know, for me the way I think about it is you don't get to be team captain on your first day, right? So maybe you have the skill to do a super complex program. That's awesome. Um, but you have to show me and you have to demonstrate that you can do this and we can ramp you up very quickly. Like maybe by week two, you're going to do some baroquially elaborate program. That's fine. But there's a, an aspect of being able to demonstrate that you have the capacity for this. And so at Precision Nutrition, we have this idea of nutritional levels, which we're kind of like throwing around the idea of getting away from the term level because it kind of implies like there's an upward progression and that you get better. (laughs) But it's not really like that. It's more like um, degrees of specialization and and professional requirements, right? So a level three client is someone who has aesthetic goals mostly for their job. Like it is their job to look a certain way. And I think a great example of that would be someone like Dwayne Johnson, whose whole job in life is just to be Dwayne Johnson, right? So his body, uh, for the most part, is his occupation. And so That's a level three client or someone who's um, a professional UFC fighter that needs to make weight. That's a level three client. It's very short term, temporary, you know, for a shoot or something like that. Um, A level two client is a client that's mastered a fairly high level of skill. So they can handle complexity and they can do it consistently. So this would be someone like a professional athlete who has mastered the foundational skills of you know, those behaviors that you need to be doing. And then level one is everyone, including athletes and celebrities, because you always start at level one. And the, the defining feature, um, well, I mean, there's a few defining features. One is the degree of specificity required and the degree of like, how much skin in the game do you have <laughs> to go to level three? But the big defining feature is really consistency. Can you do the things over and over and over and over again. And so, you know, any client can request any ridiculous program, <laughs> but you have to demonstrate that you can do it. It's like you don't let someone walk into your gym on day one and snatch 400 pounds, right? <laughs> like it's just, I, I don't care how much you want to, you just don't get allowed to do that. Um, so, I mean, that's a, it's a very analogous process. And I think like using the experiential, experimental dimension of things is a way to bring people on board. So rather than telling people, oh, here's how you should do it, you give them a task and say, okay, show me. Like, let's gather data about your life. Demonstrate to me that you can execute this consistently and competently. So now they're the ones gathering the data. And if they come back and say, well, I did this three days out of seven, you're like, okay, what does the data show, right? (laughs) Or what do the data show? So I mean, data data driven people can go one of two ways. Like they can go to the super complex stuff, or they can be um, shown through the experience of their own life, which we call writing the owner's manual, um, what works for them and what doesn't. So, I mean, it can it can swing either way. And of course, I mean, you're managing people's feelings and expectations. I mean part of the job of a coach is to set realistic expectations. So someone walks into your gym and they're 20% body fat, and they're like, I want to be 5% body fat in six weeks. Your job as a coach is to say, mm, no. <laughs> um, and I think that's perfectly fine. It's The art of coaching is, is in how you do it.
0: Yeah, no, you did uh, pick at a bit of a scab of mine. You mentioned Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> I was... Um, <laughs> Oh dear. Well, so here's the backstory. I've been working on finding a more suitable co host for my podcast, and I actually offered Dwayne I, I I offered him the job, basically, and um it's been literally months and he hasn't gotten back to me. Um so oh. we don't like to talk about him too much on
2: the show. Yeah, but, he's too um, busy
1: with his tequila business, I guess, which is well, understandable.
2: Wait, the part- he has a tequila business?
1: Oh yes. Yes, he has the rocks tequila.
2: Interesting.
1: Yeah See,
0: I don't think it's actually him. I think his people aren't getting the message through to him, which is really frustrating. But in any case... I
2: um, would also assume, and I may be overstepping here, I'd assume his people are the ones making his tequila. I doubt he's making it by hand. (laughs) You don't think he's he's making...
1: That's a
0: serious accusation.
2: (laughs) I'm just saying. I I think it's worth at least looking into, like (laughs) probing a little more. So I I, I actually do have a follow-up based on what you just said about... um, you know, making clients kind of prove that they can handle one level before advancing them further. Have you noticed with anyone you've worked with or or other coaches in your company have worked with that sometimes you get better adherence from kind of like occasionally giving people a little bit more, um maybe before they've proved that they can handle less. So as background, I don't do any nutrition coaching whatsoever. And so I'm I'm reasoning purely by analogy here from doing, you know, training coaching. Um, but like for, for a fair amount of people I've worked with, I used to take that approach of let's start everyone on something basic, prove that they can adhere to it. And then if they want to go crazy after that, we can make things a little crazier. Um, but one of the things I found was that For a lot of them, if they came in expecting something super complicated and I gave them something simple, they would very frequently kind of like go off program and like add their own little embellishments to it because one of the things that like helped them comply and helped them think that the program was going to be effective was the fact that it was complicated. And so then when I would add more complications even though in theory, it should be harder to adhere to. It was more similar to what they wanted and what they expected. So adherence actually improved. Um, Have you ever noticed anything similar with nutrition coaching? Or do you think the two spheres are just so different that that kind of one doesn't apply to the other?
1: No, I think it's absolutely analogous. And I think different kinds of clients, like there is going to be the kind of client that loves challenge. And and clients have different relationships to challenge too. Like there are going to be the clients that any grain of challenge is going to paralyze them. Like they're just going to collapse and get completely demotivated. Um, other clients love to feel like they're having a challenge, and I think of uh, my friend Jeff Gerbitz of Bang Fitness in Toronto has this thing he does where he often finishes especially new people he finishes their workout with some sled pushes and pulls and the genius of this is that first of all that feels like a really badass task right like that 's hardcore if you're if you 're not someone who has grown up in a hardcore gym getting presented with a sled that you're pushing and pulling like that feels super badass. It's it's something that most people can do, regardless of injuries or fitness level can be scaled up or down. Like most people, unless they're really busted up, can push or pull a sled in some way, even for 10 seconds. But they, and it's hard, like it's very effortful and you can pitch it so that they feel like they've done some work. Maybe it's only literally for 30 seconds or 60 seconds or whatever. But they, they get the badass feeling at the end of the workout, which is what they leave with, which is like that's their final impression of how the workout was, right? And so someone will say, how was that workout? And they're like, oh my God, Jeff killed me. It was so amazing. Even if like 95% of that workout was rehab mobility movements, they will remember the sled pushing. So I think there's absolutely something to that. Uh, again, I think it's very client specific. You, you have to work in their zone of proximal development. And it really becomes a game of like, what's the thing that I can give them that's not going to break them, but that will make them feel like they're getting something special. Eating slowly without distractions is actually one of the killer apps for this one. Even just a day of doing it, Um is a huge trip for a lot of people because it, it is incredibly difficult. Like their, their first minute of the first meal is like, oh my God, this is way harder than I expected. So that's just one example, but there's lots of examples that you could throw in there, right? Like epic amounts of colorful fruit and vegetables. Um, there's lots of things that you can put in there that doesn't break the person in terms of like distracting them from their mission or getting them preoccupied with relevant details or um, getting paralyzed by complexity or something like that. Uh, And an artful coach will kind of know like, oh, yeah, what's the thing that I can add to the program? What's the secret sauce that I can add to the program that makes the person feel like they're getting a little something? And I mean, what we're circling around is the idea that ultimately most people in coaching are chasing a feeling. There's some way that they want to feel and our job as coaches is to figure out how to construct that feeling for them. Uh, it's, I mean, like almost all of the goals that we pursue in our lives are an attempt to obtain a specific feeling. So, as a coach, the better you get at it, the more intuitively you can jump to understanding this is what this person wants to feel, and this is how I can uh, stimulate that feeling for them as much as possible.
0: Yeah, like I said, you know, my, my background is very much on the physiology side. It's uh, very focused on numbers and formulas. And would you say that that's a very common uh, mistake that a lot of people make when they first get into nutrition coaching is that they are just focused on the nuts and bolts and they don't really think about the client experience or actually uh, setting up behaviors that are going to be conducive to, to good adherence?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's a huge issue. And I think that is the curse of knowledge in any field. I mean, you got into this because you're interested in it. Presumably you love it. You studied it at a very high level. You think about it. You read books about it. You listen to podcasts about it. Everyone listening to this listens to podcasts about it. Um, and we forget how far away we are from many of the people that we serve. And again, a lot depends on your population, right? But like, it's like teaching a beginner to do even something like a basic kettlebell swing. In your mind, this is like baby stuff, right? <laughs> hip hinge, baby stuff. But, you know, if you go into the general population and you see who can competently execute a hip hinge, even with the greatest teaching on their first day, you realize, gosh, there's a lot of things to know here. And so, hopefully, the better you get as a coach, the more you realize the gap that exists between you. And the person you're working with and how to effectively bridge that gap. But I think it's really difficult because we don't know what we don't know anymore. Um, I have an eight-year-old at home and I was teaching her the other day um, how to tie her shoes. We're still working on shoe tying. And like, I realized this is actually an incredibly complicated skill. Like you need a, a lot of fine motor control and then there's like some spatial stuff and then it changes right and left. And then you have to like, I was like trying to teach this and I was like, oh my God, there's like 50 moving parts to this. So I think we do forget how much we know, um, how many connections we make intuitively and seamlessly. Like we can go from point A to point B. Well, I'll say Z, but it's Z for us Canadians. Point A to point Z, you know, in a single bound, whereas our client might need A, B, C, D. So I, I think it's definitely a problem for coaches, especially newer coaches, because they're so excited to share what they've learned and they're, they're marinating and all the terminology, you know. So we're like, Hey, you know, do something on your ipsilateral side. And the client is like, what what <laughs> what is an <laughs> ipsilateral side <laughs> right so yeah i do i do think that is a challenge and i mean ideally the more you go along the more you're willing i mean here's the other piece you want to demonstrate how much you know especially when you're newer like it's super important to you that people see you as an expert and that they recognize your authority and if you carry that forward into the rest of your career I think that's going to hamper you a little bit because then you won't be willing to simplify. You'll be like, oh, but if I simplify, everyone's going to think I'm dumb or that my advice is too simple. But the art of it is really in making it incredibly simple and clear and accessible and inviting people into that world so that maybe six months from now, yeah, maybe they'll have a sophisticated understanding. But, you know, you need to bridge that gap.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, So so my last question, obviously, was about from the coach's perspective, uh, you know, what what are key mistakes that some coaches make early on, uh, when they get into coaching, but I do want to focus a little bit on the client's perspective. Um, You know, a lot of people initiate some kind of dietary intervention for themselves. And uh, I'd say weight loss is probably among the most common. What do you see from the client side um, in terms of like the, the really glaring mistakes that are extremely common? You know, like what what is kind of the key predisposing factors to a client who uh, or an individual who embarks on this, uh, this weight loss diet and ultimately fails? What are they overlooking in the process, do you think?
1: Well, there's lots of pieces. And to go back to your first question about numbers, one of the pieces a lot of coaches and clients miss is is what we would call a biopsychosocial perspective, what we call a deep health perspective at Precision Nutrition, which is that your life contains all of these intersecting factors. And just making it about numbers or about servings of protein or whatever misses like the huge contribution that the, all of the other aspects of your life make. So let's say, for example, you have a long commute um, if you're leaving the house these days, let's imagine a time when we all left our house, you know, maybe you have a long commute and and you're on the road early and you've got kids and you've got a stressful job, um, you know, and like all these factors, and you and you're, you have to think about feeding your kids and, and making the, you know, like uh, juggling family meals and balancing full-time employment, all this kind of stuff. What affects your nutritional decisions will be so much outside of the realm of grams of protein. So I think one of the big mistakes people make is just making it about the food or even about the nutrients because we don't eat nutrients we eat food we eat meals we eat meals in context we eat meals in an environment and a whole life Um, and so i think for me that's one big piece that people just focus on on the details but the, the the vastly stronger factors affecting decisions are the rest of your life so it's really important to take kind of a holistic perspective and say what are some of the contributing factors to my food decisions, which may or may not have anything to do with nutrients? I mean, we can adjust nutrients, but the limiting factor in me eating protein may have nothing to do with being assigned X number of grams of protein. So I think that's a big one. Um, You know, another one is not having a growth mindset and not using feedback loops. And one of the great things about data-driven people is that they tend to grasp the idea of feedback and feedback loops, and they tend to feel a little bit more neutral about the data. Whereas other clients, you know, they, they do a week of something, and then they step on the scale, and the result isn't what they expected. And then they're like, ah, screw it. There's no point to this. And like they, they spiral off into some, you know, shame spiral or self-criticism or frustration or whatever rather than stepping back and saying, okay, you know, what are the data telling me if I were to look objectively at all of this? What things could I tweak and adjust? So I think that most people do not use feedback and data effectively and neutrally and as objectively as possible. Um, and they go down the rabbit hole into self-criticism, which of course amplifies the stress, <laughs> which amplifies the tendency to go into stress coping behaviors, which, you know, we all know where that goes. So I think that's... Um, that's another really big piece. Um, And then, you know, I I do think that most people overcomplicate it and we're told to overcomplicate it. I mean, the nutrition industry thrives on us overcomplicating things, but I think people do not understand some of the fundamental principles that make things work. And I think, I mean, as silly as it sounds, I don't think most people really grasp that you have to create an energy deficit if you want to lose weight. Like, it's just the most fundamental fact. No matter how much you, you rearrange the cookies on the plate or whatever, how much you play with your macronutrients or eat in the morning, eat at night, eat standing on your head, like, people forget the simple energy in an energy out equation. There's lots of factors that can affect that, of course. Um, you know, whatever your energy out is can be affected by all kinds of things. You know, some of these inputs and outputs can be a little bit mysterious, but it doesn't change this fundamental relationship. And so I think a lot of people have trouble just cutting through the crap and saying, okay, no matter what else I do around this, I simply have to eat less energy. Than I expend. And for me, there's like a beautiful simplicity about that. Everything else on top of that is just, I don't want to say window dressing, but like a little bit more extraneous uh, for a weight loss client.
0: Yeah. Now, throughout the 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 interview here, we, we've kind of come close to a particular topic or mentioned things related to it, but we haven't uh, we haven't dove into that topic yet. So I want to transition really briefly to Um, you know, you mentioned all these different things that contribute to our food decisions. I want to talk a little bit about people's relationship with food. Um, you know, I feel like in social on social media, whenever I hear somebody talking about nutrition, it's really, really common to hear somebody say, I had a poor relationship with food and now it's better. What determines our relationship with food? And more importantly, what does fixing someone's relationship with food look like?
2: Actually, Trex. Yeah, can that be a teaser? Because I wanted to slide one more coaching question in first. Sure. Yeah. So one thing that I have been curious about, just regarding PN for a long time, is uh, one of the things. One of the things that I hear people claim on social media and blogs, etc., all the time, is that like behavior and habit change isn't sexy. That that's the effective thing for, you know, maintaining health and losing weight, etc, etc. But like, you can't sell people on that. It's not exciting. It's not sexy. And I mean, one of one of my responses to that is like, well, fucking look at PN, because that kind of seems to be their whole jam. And they seem to be, you know, quite successful, both with helping people lose weight and keep it off. And in terms of being able to sell it and be a very successful business. So just in general, how how would you respond to that notion that, you know, habits and behavior change aren't sexy? And then what have you guys done at PN to make it more, you know, exciting, sexy, uh, sellable to the customer and also sellable to clients to get them to adhere and buy in? (laughs)
1: <laughs> I've never really thought of behavior change as sexy before. So now you've given me more things to think about. Um, you know, I I think. Well, you you can
2: you can substitute that with exciting.
1: Yeah. No. I no. I I'm, I'm going to roll with sexy. I'm I'm going to stay with that. Um. You know, I think. <laughs> I think this is the, one of the foundational challenges for anyone in a, a domain that does require repeated and potentially unexciting behaviors. Whether that is learning an instrument, learning a new language, studying for university, putting in the reps in the gym. I mean, the fundamental fact is that we live, if you're in North America, we live in a culture where our relationship to long-term sustained effort is a little bit broken. And we love the Cinderella story, so to speak. We love overnight successes, even though, you know, that doesn't really exist. But we're in love with, like, the collective fiction of fast results. Um, So I think the first step is kind of realizing that that is a cultural narrative that we have. And so, like, you're never going to completely override it because, you know, it's a fundamental human desire to have quick transcendence. I was just listening to a, something on um, the radio the other day about about John Milton's Paradise Lost. Right, like someone was thinking about transcendence two hundred years ago, and I'm sure humans were thinking about it three thousand years ago. Like basically, the question is, how can I get the hell out of where I am right now? <laughs> That's a fundamental human desire. So I, I think kind of recognizing and allowing that to be the case uh, is is not wrong, but. I think there's something that we also know in the back of our minds, all of us, that Cinderella is just a story. And I think all of us have gone the route of trying something for quick transcendence and finding it ultimately unfulfilling. So there's two human needs here, right? One of them is quick fix, quick transcendence. And another one is like, the human self-awareness that like all of the things that we've tried haven't worked (laughs) like it's the human frustration right so i think we like to speak a lot to the hey listen you've tried a bunch of crap you know it doesn't work like between the two of us you know what the real deal is and so we speak to that person that's come out the other end of the quick fix, quick fix process, and is feeling a little bit disillusioned, frustrated, lost, confused. They feel like throwing in the towel. We speak to that human feeling, and we're like, <laughs> we're like, you know, in the alley, like pushing behavior change. Like, hey, man, you want to try some behavior change? Like, no. um, <laughs> first habit is free, um, and and we give and and we also invite curiosity. So rather than saying, hey, everyone should be doing habit change, we're like hey, would you like to try something? So, I mean, another human thing is curiosity. People are curious. And so can we harness the curiosity in the service of getting them going in the right direction? And so this kind of comes back to the sled pushing idea of harnessing human curiosity in the service of doing the right thing. Can we find a game to play with people an experiment to invite them to try something that sparks their curiosity enough that they're willing to take the gateway drug And discover how it works for them. So, um, you know, it's like behavior change is probably never going to be super sexy, but I think most people come to the dawning realization that whatever they're doing isn't working. And that's the person that we speak to. Like, are you sick of all of the crap? Are you sick of the diets? Look, you, you tried this and this and this, you know, it doesn't work why don't you come hang out with us? Uh, You know, we like to say that we're like an island of sanity in an ocean of crazy. I think on some level, most people are longing for that. Like they just, they want to step out of the frazzle, you know, and the, the craziness to just find some sanity. And so we don't really speak to the people for whom this is their first rodeo. We speak to what I call refugees from the diet scene, people who are just exhausted by the crap. So, Part of it, I think, is speaking to people who are ready to hear the message, you know?
0: That makes all the sense in the world to me because, I mean, out in in the diet world, there's so much that you have to wade through. I mean, anybody that's tried to lose weight a few discreet times has probably been promised, if you just cut carbs and they try that and they're like, eh, that didn't really do it. Well, if you just cut fat and they try that, you know, and if you just cut breakfast or if you just cut dinner at a certain point that... I would imagine you you guys collectively are just standing there like, it's time, you know? Like, yeah,
1: yeah, totally. Give totally. it up. And it's think, time. And, and, you know, I think it's it's really interesting to have aged along with the fitness industry because the fitness and nutrition industry t- are typically very young industries. But I'm seeing a lot of people that I followed 20 years ago or even 30 years ago um, are now saying hey uh i'm i'm old and all the kind of things i was saying 20 years ago about being hardcore yeah you know what um i don't believe them anymore and so i, I think the i think the fitness and nutrition industry has also matured in a way um i mean there's always going to be crap out there but i think like some of the, the the voices that have persisted in the industry are maturing along with their bodies and saying different things about how stuff works and I don't think it's the predominant uh, tone of things, but I do think that there's kind of a maturity to the industry that, you know, maybe wasn't around um, a few decades ago.
2: Yeah, that that makes a ton of sense. Uh, y- your answer to the prior question was far more existential than I was banking on, uh, <laughs> but was absolutely excellent.
1: <laughs> uh, well, I mean, here's the thing, right? Like we we're, we we can't sell... I mean our PN coaching program I designed it as a life change program right like it it, rev- it revises you from the inside out but we cannot sell it like that and so I mean a part of the art of marketing and coaching is telling people to some degree, what they think they want to hear, but giving them what they actually need. And that is the game (laughs) that we're all playing and and putting it in language that is intelligible. So, I mean, we don't sell PN coaching as, hey, we're going to overhaul your life. You may dramatically rethink your relationships and who you are in the world. You may quit your job. Like, I mean, all of these things have happened. I've joked that we break up marriages, like, (laughs) because as people come to a a greater awareness of themselves and, and the issues that shape their lives, they start to see a lot of things way more clearly, right? So, but we can't sell it like that. So, I mean, we do talk about getting in shape and changing your body, all that kind of stuff. Um, so like what you tell people on the surface as well, maybe you have a little bit more leeway with that than what you actually offer them. And that is the art is, is giving people, again, what they truly need while making them think it's what they want.
2: Now, I, I have an idea. You're free to take it or leave it if fundamentally what you're doing is overhauling people's lives, in the next book y'all put out, uh, you could include a deity figure and then reincorporate as a religion and possibly <laughs> save on some tax money. Um,
1: you know, I like do, where this do, is going.
2: Do with that what you will. Yeah, let's, well, uh, it's not the
1: worst idea. <laughs> let's circle
2: back to that question Trex had like 15 minutes ago.
0: Uh, just a, a quick self-serving one. One of the like, really notable characteristics of my personality is that I'm mostly dead inside. Do you think you have a... Do you have a nutrition program for that?
1: <laughs> so you have the thousand-yard stare. Well, I mean, we can just get you going through the motions, right? We can, we can you know, construct you like a life exoskeleton. So you can just repeat a series of, of pattern movements and, and actions that make you feel like you're living a full life.
0: That'd be... I, I yearn for that.
1: <laughs> Shut the fuck up, Eric. <laughs> okay.
0: Um... Yeah, I did want to get back to the question that I teased earlier um, before Greg grabbed the microphone. So one of the themes that I've seen more and more and more in the nutrition discourse on social media is speaking about an individual's relationship with food. Um, And you kind of mentioned way toward the beginning of the interview that there are a lot of things that kind of shape that. And I guess what I would hope for this podcast uh, or for this part of the podcast is that someone who's curious, like, do I have a good relationship with food, that they can get some clarity about, like, what does that mean? And and what can an individual hope to, to truly do about that, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah. And there, I mean, there's a lot embedded in your question, so I'll try to pull it apart. I mean, we have actually been thinking about this quite a lot, me and my colleagues, uh, about like is there a way to assess someone's relationship with food? I mean, there are clinical instruments, but like not PN style, right? Like PN style is a different way of thinking about things. And so like, is there a way to drill down people's relationship with food into a series of indicators or a series of questions that you could ask? I mean, coaching to me in a way is about asking the right questions, right? And and not more than you need, but just exactly the right amount. And so there are, I think, certain questions that you can ask people that will start to get at, you know, their health of their relationship with food. And, I mean, it's a lot analogous to the health of a relationship with a person, right? Um, Does my relationship with this person take up an appropriate amount of mental and emotional real estate? Um, You know, and obviously different people will inhabit our lives in different ways, right? The, The amount of mental real estate your kid takes up should be different than the amount of mental real estate that like your neighbor takes up, unless your neighbor is also your kid. But that's, you know, you see what I'm saying. Um, So it's the same with food, right? You want to be thinking about food or, or, you know, planning food or problem solving around food, just the right amount. So not so little that you're just mindlessly putting food in the food hole, but not so you know, all consuming, that it's all you think about and all you do. And I'm always a little bit like hesitant with people who are like, oh, I'm a real foodie and I have a blog about food and I think about food all the time. And I'm like, "Mm, you know, I don't want to discourage you from your hobby, but you may want to examine that and how how it operates for you in your life. So, I mean, question number one is, what's an appropriate amount of psychological and life real estate that you're devoting to this relationship? And is it crowding out other potentially more fulfilling activities, pursuits, and so forth. So, for example, is your relationship with food crowding out your relationship with other actual human beings or with activities that might bring meaning to your life or teach you new skills or something like that? Um, Are you expanding? And I don't mean physically, but like go back to the existential. Are you becoming a bigger, better person As a result of this relationship or are you becoming a smaller more narrow person as a result of this relationship that's a good question to ask um you know we're looking for the balance of just the correct amount and as someone is learning a new relationship with food they may be thinking about it more they may be talking about it more they may be digesting so to speak uh, more stuff around it but ideally our hope is that it settles into a place of appropriateness where it's just the right amount. Um, Another thing about, you know, a fulfilling relationship with a person is that there's a give and take. There's mutuality, right? You don't um, love the other person more than they love you in the sense of like, you know, are, are you overloving and are they draining you, right? You don't want that kind of asymmetrical relationship. Ideally you want a relationship of mutuality. So, If you think about a relationship with food, are you gaining value from your choices? Are your choices nourishing you? Are they adding value to your body? Are they improving your performance or your recovery or your function or whatever? Um, But, you know, is is there a level of symmetry in that relationship? You're getting something out of it. You know, it's giving something to you. That's another way to know it. But I, I think, you know, for me, like... Honestly, one question that will tell you pretty much everything is what What's the level of mental real estate, um, and what are the emotions around this? Uh, you know, is this prompting calm, uh, sanity, <laughs> a sense of peace, um, clarity, uh, compassion? Like, is it prov- provoking these, or is it provoking anxiety, depression, self criticism, panic, worry? um, complete cluelessness. Like what is the emotional experience that you're having? Um, are you having some of those more calm, balanced emotions? And I mean, to go back to the feeling that people want to have a lot of time, my clients will say things like, I want to feel more confident. I want to trust myself. I want to feel more calm. I want to feel more balanced. So I think for me, those are indicators that you're moving in, in the right direction um, and then, I mean, there are there are granular indicators every day that you can look at, right? Like, am I making a choice that truly adds value to my body and to my life? Am I eating my colorful fruits and vegetables? Am I eating my protein? Am I getting overly rigid? Am I, uh, you know, how, what degree of adaptability do I have? Something else you don't want in relationships is to get overly rigid. Oh, this person, you know, must always do this and it should always be like that. Well, I mean, that's not the nature of you human relationships right and and with food it's the same thing do you get stressed out if you cannot control your food or if you cannot abide by rigid parameters how strict how rigid uh, is this or how flexible how adaptable can you can you adapt on the fly are you resilient are you creative are you resourceful that tells you a lot about your relationship with food as well as soon as i heard the term control with the client i'm like Let's think about that. <laughs> so, I mean, that's that's sort of a, a lengthy answer, but, uh, you know, hopefully it gives people a few clues that they can at least ask themselves about.
0: Yeah, I, mean, I think that's a, a really terrific perspective on it. And I will say, you know, I come from the perspective, uh, I'm from the bodybuilding world, you know, bodybuilding, physique, figure, all that stuff. And so my exposure to content about relationships with food from my little... um area of fitness there seems to be an enormous overlap where where uh you know self-identified poor relationships with food tend to correlate very highly with body image issues uh is that something that is seen more broadly or i mean when we were first when we first started talking you mentioned things like past trauma is it just that i'm seeing it through a very very narrow scope
1: well, you know, it's interesting you ask because there are people who, ha- who have a physique and bodybuilding background that have always seemed to just be healthy and sane about it. And, and so, that you know, part of it is probably a set of personality traits uh, that allow a person to be healthy and sane and balanced and kind of pragmatic about it and, you know, not get too overwrought about it, but devote some level of attention to it. Like there's probably a set of personality traits that um, allow a person to be in the physique world, but emerge unscathed, if I can say that. Um, But a significantly larger proportion of people uh, do come out of the physique and bodybuilding world talking about a messed up relationship with food. So um, I also like to think about like, not just where people are right now, but where are they going to be in six months, 12 months, five years from now, 10 years from now. So if we look at the long term trajectory of things, a lot of people who are currently messed up about food, um, you know, a kind of over-focus on food, which is intrinsic to the physique world, was one of the precipitating factors. But it's certainly not the only precipitating factor. I mean, we know that nutrient restriction itself can cause problems with food, right? There's the famous starvation studies. I noticed this when I was working with a lot of fighters, people who were cutting weight, like guys, like young guys who'd never had body issues before, were acquiring body issues and weird food hoarding issues and weird food behaviors like driving around in their car at 3 a.m. looking for giant bags of cashews, like stuff like that. Um, you know, they acquired these things as a result of The nutrient deprivation and the energy deprivation of weight cutting combined with hard training. So, like that for me was super interesting how you can almost give someone disordered eating if you restrict them enough. And then people come to it from other pathways, right? Maybe you were, you know, quote unquote, the fat kid and, you know, your parents were on you, but going on a diet from age seven and your, you know, peers picked on you. Like maybe that was your pathway into this. Or again, yeah, maybe you had some kind of trauma. Maybe you grew up poor. There wasn't a lot of food in the house, you know, and you got kind of stuck on it that way. So there's, there's lots and lots of pathways into a difficult relationship with food. But certainly one of the ones that will almost, I don't want to say almost certainly, but in the vast majority of cases, give you a problem if you didn't have one, is prolonged chronic nutrient and energy deprivation. That's almost like your express train down the road to uh, having issues.
0: Definitely. Yeah, well, um, very, very interesting interview that we've had up to this point. Um, a lot of stuff that uh, I, I think is, is going to be super useful to our audience because we rarely get to dive into these topics because uh, Greg and I don't know anything about them. So uh <laughs> really, really, <laughs> really, really appreciate your time uh, and, and that you've been willing to share your expertise with us. Um, one thing I did want to ask you before we sign off here, um, it says on the Precision Nutrition website that you're pretty adamant that people should learn some basic cooking skills to uh, to support their uh, nutrition endeavors. Is it safe to assume that you're pretty into cooking yourself as a hobby?
1: You know, I am, but the funny thing is I'm not super good at it. And here's why, (laughs) because for me, it's more, I'm, I'm one of those people that will do a job to 80% completion. I'm a little bit ADD, kind of a lot ADD. Um, and so my, my attention to the precision required to be a good cook, like to put, you know, to be careful about measuring and that kind of stuff and following instructions and not substituting ridiculously, um, (laughs) I'm I'm not as good at that, and so like I have a lot of enthusiasm for cooking. I enjoy it. I find it relaxing. I do it a lot, but I don't have the requisite um, patience, or I, I'm really bad with rules and instructions. I've always been my whole, my whole life, so I'm probably a less good cook than someone who would patiently and diligently and carefully follow a recipe with very little cooking expertise. But yeah, that being said, I, I do I do enjoy it and I do love it and I, and I do think it's fun.
2: What are some of your favorite things to cook?
1: You know, I love anything that seems complicated but isn't really, uh, like a roast mm. chicken, you know, yeah. like when you when you busted a roast chicken, everyone's like, oh my God, that's amazing. And you're like, literally, you open the oven door, shove the thing in, <laughs> come back in an hour, right? Or even something like butterflying a chicken, um, you know. Like, if you're willing to just get in there and hack stuff up, it's really not that complicated. So, I mean, baking is a whole other world. Like, baking I don't do because that's far too meticulous. Um, but anything, like, roasty, anything like applying fire, like, that is my jam. I, um, I I now live in an apartment where I can't do this, but for a long time I was getting really into smoking. I was smoking everything. Like, well, you mm. know, like, can I smoke this? Can I smoke that? I had a a, a green egg, which was wonderful. Um, So I was super into smoking, like, everything that I could think about. Alcoholic drinks, how does this work? (laughs) So, yeah, that was my jam for a while.
2: That's awesome.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Stronger by Science podcast, basically the last 20% of every episode is Greg talking about cooking. So I... Everything you're talking about is very much right up his alley. One recommendation I would have next time you're, you're doing some roasting uh, oh with God. any kind of bird. Where is this going? If, if I were you, I would spatchcock the bird. Shut the fuck it,
2: up, Eric. It's just a,
0: a <laughs> technique I taught Greg about where if you're going to roast Jesus the bird, Christ. you want to spatchcock it for sure. It, it just brings out so much flavor. <laughs> Cooks right yeah. through very evenly. Yeah. Well,
1: You know, and and there are those little like um, I don't want to use the term hacks, but there's like there are some things in the world that like are really super high leverage activities, and like using butter is another one, right? Like everyone's like, oh, what does restaurant food taste so good? It's because they use cream and butter. Like butter makes everything better, and I think it's something that fitness people are like, oh my god, butter. Like we we tell people. Um, at at p.m. like butter's okay to eat and everyone's like oh my god it's so rebellious i mean it's not like go stick a thing of butter in your coffee and i mean we're not going down that road but there is something magical about butter uh <laughs> it really is like the killer app for for making food uh amazing
0: yeah greg showed me a video one time of making scrambled eggs and it was like what what were the proportions on that?
2: It, so it, it was a, a Gordon Ramsay scrambled egg recipe, and it was one tablespoon of butter per egg plus an additional <laughs> tablespoon of butter to to finish the emulsion. I so like I, I think I think it was three eggs. No, it, it was four eggs and five tablespoons of butter plus a little uh creme fraiche. Yeah, nice. it was
0: a little more indulgent than my macros could handle but someday i'll work my way up to it it,
2: it was it was legit like 70 80 grams of fat for breakfast <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah you need to set aside a whole day for that like that's a commitment i think
2: oh
0: yeah it, it was like
2: bulletproof eggs
0: bulletproof eggs definitely <laughs> um well krista like i said uh we we really appreciate uh, the fact that you'd spend the time with us and, and uh, share some of your expertise with us. Uh, if people want to stay in touch with you or, or kind of uh, keep up to w- up to date with what you're working on, where can people find you?
1: Well, uh, the best p- place to start is probably precisionnutrition.com. Um, you know, I'm pretty active on the blog there. So you can go and you can, I mean, read tons of free stuff, including things that I've written, Um, You know, you can find me on on the Facebooks. Uh, You can find me on Instagram. Often I'll post links to things like podcasts I've done. Um, On Instagram, I'm at Stumptuous. Um, So those are really the best places to find me. Uh, And Krista Scott Dixon is not such a common name. If you Google me, I should not be that difficult to locate.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Take care. Have a great
1: day. Thanks. You too.
0: Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit StrongerByScience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.